The gospel reading for today comes from the gospel of Luke, chapter 6, verses 27 through 38. The scene is that Jesus continues to preach his sermon on the plain. I invite you to listen for the word of the Lord. But I say to you that listen, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from anyone who takes away your coat, do not withhold even your shirt. Give to everyone who begs from you. And if anyone takes away your goods, do not ask for them again. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you hope to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much again. But love your enemies. Do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. And if that's not enough, do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For the measure you give will be the measure you get back. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I preached my first sermon during my second year of seminary, and I don't remember anything about it, except that my friend Nate said that I was too serious. Some of that is uncomfortable laughter. Nate was a, a brilliant young theologian who was one of my mentors during seminary. After I preached the sermon, I just, what'd you think, Nate? I know better now, after 10 years, not to preach or not to ask for feedback on my sermons, but I was younger then, and I suppose just more eager. Nate looked at me and he said, you weren't very funny. I was like, thank you, Nate. It's not really the kind of feedback that I was looking for, but I appreciate that. Could you say more? And so he explained, look, you like to laugh. I've observed you in other contexts where you like to laugh, where you make other people laugh. You are a very sarcastic person. And then you got into the pulpit and you were just really serious. 
which is a, a fair point. I am a very sarcastic person. I like to laugh. I like to laugh with other people. Um, but yeah, I had thought that maybe if I was sarcastic or silly in the pulpit that people wouldn't take me seriously. Turns out there's a lot of other reasons why people don't take me seriously, <laughs> which is a different sermon. Anyways, being the rather insufferable seminary student that I was, that all of us are in seminary, I defended myself by saying, the gospel isn't funny, Nate. <laughs> to which he replied, are you sure? Are you sure? Frederick Buechner once wrote that it is only when you hear the gospel as a wild and marvelous joke that you really hear it at all. It is only when you hear the gospel as a wild and marvelous joke that you really hear it at all. Grace fills the world with comedy. Do you remember when Sarah laughed when God told her that she would bear a child? Or about that parable Jesus told in which God is the eccentric host who has a party and doesn't invite anyone that should be there but invites the losers and the beggars and the thieves and the outcasts? Or the parable about the shepherd who leaves his entire flock to find the one wandering lost sheep. It's pure comedy. These are funny stories. It takes a sense of humor to be able to see the grace that runs throughout the story that God, God writes. That God redeems sinners like us isn't necessarily funny, but it is comedy. It is comedy. It means that no matter what happens, life is ultimately not a tragedy. The Old Testament reading for today reminds us of this comedy of grace through the reconciliation that occurs between Joseph and his brothers. If you remember, Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery because he was their father's favorite child. Proportionate? I don't think so. Years later, Joseph has risen to power in Egypt. He has authority over the land during a famine and his brothers travel to Egypt looking for food. They don't know that he has risen to the level that he's risen to. And after revealing that he is their brother, what does he do? He forgives them for their act of betrayal. And if that act of compassion and mercy isn't ridiculous enough, Joseph tells them that, you know what? It actually wasn't you who did this to me. It was God who had this entire plan so that I would be in a position I'm in today to give you food, to preserve your life. What is this story if not pure comedy? Joseph should have punished them. He should have at least pranked them a little bit better. He should have sent them away empty-handed, but instead he forgives them. Only someone who believes in the wild and rather ridiculous grace of God could accept that something that was so horrible, that was so wrong, could serve a higher purpose. Only someone who believes in the comedy of grace could forgive such an act of betrayal. Now I know that you might be thinking, if life is a comedy, does that mean that bad things don't really happen? Does that mean that evil isn't serious? 
Does it mean that I don't have enemies? No, of course not. But it does change the way that we think about these things and how we respond to them. Some of you might have seen America's finest public theologian, Stephen Colbert, talk about his faith recently. Colbert offered his uh, guest, guest who was pop star Dua Lipa the, the chance to interview him, to ask him a question. And she asked him how his faith and his comedy relate to each other. I think that most people, including Dua Lipa, was, were pretty stunned by his kind of off-the-cuff response. He said that his faith helps him see that love and sacrifice are related, so that death is never defeat. Death is never defeat. And then he said he sees laughter, comedy, as an antidote, a very necessary antidote to fear. Because fear is what leads us to respond to to evil with evil. And he quoted the, the poet Robert Hayden who said, we must not be frightened or cajoled into accepting evil as our deliverance from evil. Only comedy keeps us from that fear. You can hopefully see what all of this has to do with the gospel reading that I read a few minutes ago. Only when we believe that life is ultimately not a tragedy will we be able to accept this teaching. Only when we believe that life is not a tragedy will we be able to live this teaching out. Only when we can accept, like Colbert, that death is not a defeat can we come to love our enemies. And only when we see the comedy of God's grace, truly for what it is, extended to sinners like us, will we be able to understand that no evil thing done by our worst enemies expresses all that he or she is. I think that most of us like the idea of being forgiven by God. And we like the idea that others who we might have hurt will forgive us. I think in theory, we even like the idea that God loves his enemies. And that maybe we should try to do something similar but only in the abstract. When it gets specific, when it gets personal, I think most of us really struggle with this teaching. I think many of us actually find it repellent. And if not repellent, impractical, idealistic. And I guess if you're thinking of this passage as impractical, I would just invite you to look around at the world right now and consider whether our so-called practical approach is really getting us anywhere either. Notice that Jesus does not say, do not have enemies. Everybody can sigh, <laughs> a sigh of relief. That Jesus tells us to love our enemies means we must recognize them as our enemies. When Martin Luther King Jr. preached on this passage, he said, loving our enemies does not mean we have to like them. Again, sigh of relief. Like is too sentimental a word. It's too affectionate of a word. Love goes much, much deeper. And I think that if we're going to live this passage 
out. We have to resist any definition of love that is somehow passive, right? Our fear in loving our enemies is that we will let people hurt us or that we will be a doormat. But love is not passive. Love is a force, a powerful force. It is the most durable power on earth. As Thomas Aquinas put it, love is to will the good of the other person. Have you ever tried to will the good of a person you despise? That is not a weakness. That is a strength. That takes an enormous amount of energy. In the end, it may be that the only way to love our enemies is by refusing to play the game they play, by refusing to humiliate them, by refusing to defeat them, but instead to try to win their friendship and to win their understanding. In that same sermon about this passage, King told a story about Abraham Lincoln that perhaps many of you know. I wanna repeat it here because I often hear that we are just as divided as a country now as we were then in the days of Lincoln, maybe during the Civil War. In fact, there was a, a recent poll by Harvard's Kennedy School it showed that more than half of young people right now fear for another civil war. So maybe a story from that time might be worth learning from. When Lincoln was campaigning for president, one of his arch enemies was a man named Edwin Stanton. Stanton was a troll. He was. He hated Lincoln and he let everyone know it. He used every ounce of his energy to degrade and to criticize him. His feelings about him were so strong that he wasn't only attacking his ideas, he was trying to personally embarrass him. He would criticize and make remarks about his, public, his, his appearance. But as history shows, Lincoln won the election. He was elected president anyway, and as all presidents do, he had to pick his cabinet. And when the time came to do that, he chose Edwin Stanton to be his secretary of war, surprising everyone. His advisors were a bit outraged. He is your enemy. Do you know what he has said about you? He will sabotage you, your presidency, and this country. But Lincoln believed that he was the best person for the job. And he was right. Stanton served his country and Lincoln's presidency admirably. Maybe if you're a, a cynic like me, you might be thinking, keep your friends close. <laughs> keep your enemies closer. And maybe it started out that way, but it's hard to see that it stayed that way. Standing at his grave after he was killed, Stanton referred to Lincoln as one of the greatest men who ever lived famously saying he now belongs to the ages. They had become friends. King observed that if Lincoln had hated Stanton, like Stanton hated him, that they would have gone to their graves as enemies. But instead, Lincoln found a way to transform an enemy into a friend, and their partnership changed history. When later, Lincoln was also sharply criticized for speaking a kind word about the South during the Civil War, he responded, do I not destroy my enemies when I make them my friends? Do I not destroy my enemies when I make them my friends? I wanted to entitle this sermon, Destroy Your Enemies, but I was worried, <laughs> obviously, about the impact. 
Inevitably, I will receive an email this week with the question, what about the real monsters of history, John? What about them, the ones who inflicted pain and suffering on the world? Are we supposed to love them? Look, first of all, I don't make the rules. But the short answer is yes. And as good of a question as that is, as sincere of a question that that is, it's also a paralyzing one. We get stuck, I think, trying to apply this teaching to the monsters out there, the enemy out there. So what I'm saying is that maybe don't start there. Don't start with the monsters. Start with an OU fan. <laughs> a Texas Tech fan. Some of you need to start with a Democrat, a Republican. Start with someone you know that you don't like. Start with a neighbor down the street with those annoying signs in their yard. Start with your cousin on Facebook. And do this. A few weeks ago at our foundation lectures, one of our speakers, uh, John Anazu, offered a practice that I think might help some of the polarization, some of the divide in our country. He said, find someone you think poorly of, a political opponent, a rival, an adversary, an enemy, and pray for them. Only make them prayers of gratitude for the things that they do well, for the people whose lives they help improve, for the ways they contribute to human flourishing. And then ask yourself this question, if you can't come up with anything Ask whether that's because you need to change or they do. I say start here with prayer because the ask to love your enemies is too great for you. It's too great for any of us. You will need a power higher and greater than yourself to pull this off. And so start with prayer. Lent is just around the corner. May I suggest destroying your enemies this Lent? by loving them, transforming them into your friends. Nate would probably say that I am still too serious, but I'm working on it. Because the comedy of the gospel might be what we need now more than ever. Life is not ultimately a tragedy. What better way for us to declare that truth than by loving our enemies. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.